0: I'm Jay Adedin. my co-host Miles Stokes is out this week, but I am here, well actually I'm not here to explain the X-Men, but that's what we normally do on the show. This is episode 312 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And this week, I think for the first time in an episode proper, we are actually digressing from the X-Men themselves. Um, I have a writer on here, someone I am super, super excited to be talking to. that is author Bob Proles, the author of the Nobody People and the Somebody People, the resonant duology, which are extremely heavily X-Men-inspired and uh, referential books that also take a lot of the ideas and premises from X-Men in a really radically different direction. And I feel like while we normally limit the content of the show to X-Men and folks who've worked on it, this is something that's at such a neat intersection of the original the original comic of ways to interact with the fandom and of cool stuff that's coming out now in other directions to take that i really wanted to take the opportunity to do that so bob welcome
1: thank you so much for having me i'm really excited to be here
0: um so for for folks who are just coming into this or who are coming mostly from an x-men angle um can, can i be a jerk and ask you to sum up the books <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, sure, so it, it is, like you said, it's very X-Men-inspired. It is about a, a group of people in the books that are called Resonance. And this is sort of, the, the larger story is this is the moment of, of them uh, sort of going public. Um, and the, the smaller scale story is it, it follows, the first book particularly follows a, a reporter named Avi Hirsch, who not only finds out that these people exist, um, but finds out that his, his young daughter is, is one of them. And so it is kind of him learning about them and helping them uh, come out into the world, and um, the sort of the the results, both positive and negative, that uh, that come with them going public.
0: So this book was was recommended to me as as X Men adjacent specifically, which it is in a lot of ways. And those you know, there's a lot of conversation in fandom and in, in 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 writing about the idea of fan fiction and scratching off the serial numbers. What you've done is something really different. It's something that's very, very transparent about its influences and base, but that goes in, in again, radically different directions. There's, there's not sort of the one-to-one substitution you'd, you'd see in something like that. But there's also not really obscuring of the source material either. And I want to talk about that more, but I'm thinking that the place that stick, sticks out to me the most is in, in the, the prologue to the first book, where you've, you've got a situation that I'm not going to spoil, but that for anyone familiar with, with a specific era of X-Men is going to be incredibly, incredibly recognizable, um, down to the names of the characters. But that plays out very differently than it does in the comics. Is is there a reason that you, you kept that so close? Like is it is it homage or was that like a sort of deliberate you think you recognize this, but it's not what you're looking for?
1: I mean it was it was definitely an homage and it was I I was so concerned about like you can't avoid um, mm-hmm the fact that it, it's an X-Men influence book. So I thought just putting that sort of as upfront as possible. Um, you know, it, it was an interesting project to work on because none of the, uh, like my writing group and my editor are not super familiar with, with the X-Men. So I, some of the stuff I was just getting away with. Um, but particularly with the prologue, yeah, I just wanted to s- sort of say like, yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be coy about this um, and just put it right out there at the beginning.
0: So... When you're working with something that familiar or with, with the understanding that some of your readership is going to come in catching those references and some isn't, but you're writing something that's that's deliberately referential and in some ways kind of a rebuttal to some of that, how do you balance accessibility? How do you how do you keep the 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 grounding, you know, in your source material transparent if you want it to be there without having having to without you know ending up with ready player one
1: these ones and um my first novel 100,000 worlds have like ties to fan culture um and uh and to fandom but i really i didn't want it to be ready player one i didn't want them to be like a jay and silent bob movie where the only where there's this bar to entry so i think um the the first book which was about comic book conventions was a good sort of um primer for me in that and and i, I in both cases, I've had the advantage of having uh, having readers, like early readers, who didn't know much about comics at all. Um, so, finding ways to to get the put those references there, but um, not lean on them in such a way that um, that you need to know them to to get through the book. So, I, I think you know, speaking of the prologue, and, and we can you know we can spoil. It's the first ten pages of a thousand page book, um, but. You know, I I wanted to make sure that, um, like, that section worked on its own, whether or not you, you know, whether you're bringing um, Sam Guthrie into it or not, um, that that any reader is going to, like, is going to be able to get through that thing and, and have some sort of emotional reaction to it. It's
0: one of, I mean, one of the most obvious points of departure and differentiation, um, is that you're you're writing the, the story that the book you're writing gets gets branded as a dystopia. I feel like it's more complicated than that. But it's also very firmly set in in a realistic world, at least initially. It's set or the Avi she's the like you said, it's the main point of view character for the first chunk of the first book comes in with the frame of reference that anyone who's lived in our world would have, you know, without the expectation that there are people with superpowers and without the idea that, for instance, superheroes are a thing. And so superheroes are really not a concept that ever comes up. How much did the story follow the concepts that carried over versus the other way around?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, you talked about sort of filing the serial numbers off and um, a lot of what was going on with with this book was like figuring out what, um, what worked and what didn't work. Um, for me, in X Men comics, like if you were sort of like taking it seriously as a metaphor, mm-hmm. um, and you know, one of the big things that always sticks out in in Marvel comics is discrimination discrimination against mutants in a world full of people with superpowers actually doesn't make a lot of sense right. and is is kind of a tough sell. Um, that like Spider Man is okay, but unless you're Jason, is know. not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did. Uh, that was something that had to be sort of stripped away. And I, I didn't want them to be, um, I didn't want them to, uh, be mostly engaged in like fight scenes. You know, I I think a lot of, um, a lot of that, a lot of the more action oriented comic booky stuff actually happens between the two books and kind of off screen. Um, so I, I really, what I was interested in were, was the sort of quieter stuff. And, um, you know, the other the other place this started was this This is the first time that I've tried writing writing science fiction and I had been sort of encouraged to do it and I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I like writing, writing about people being sad in a room. <laughs> and so it, it really kind of started as like, well, what if there are people that are sad in a room but they can shoot lasers out of their eyes? Well, I mean, you've got a character
0: um, whose, whose entire concept is built around sad in a room, at least
1: yeah. initially. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was... You know, some of it was going through and finding out what, um, at like a conceptual level, what was going to work and what made more sense and what seemed sort of more um, realistic or like metaphorically resonant, and um, and part of it was just really kind of um, kind of drilling down on the the emotional aspects of it, um, and and so that you know that makes the sort of capes and spandex stuff less interesting when you can just. know just be sort of it it did end up being a really a lot of it is really quiet um, and sort of situated and um, and and for that I think the um, having a real world real world base um, helped a whole lot Um, you know in the second book a lot of that has changed and it was a really different project to approach um, sort of more high science fiction stuff uh, which was which was fun and I, at that point I had written I, I'm like, okay well I've written 500 pages of sci-fi I can probably try to do this now.
0: That's actually one of the points where I feel like it it most directly evokes the X-Men what you mentioned about the the slow slow scenes and especially the way it's built around character relationships because while Avi starts out as the main point of view character as that shifts what we see more and more are, is is the arc that we we see over the years with with a lot of x-men the students who start out at, at in in your world the bishop school who grow up who have to navigate a world that's changing and who have to navigate their own changing relationships with their former classmates
1: yeah you know I I was writing about this for um uh a, like a short essay that I did for a UK publication but like I'm really as much as I like this school idea whether it's you know a, a Magical School or the something like the Xavier School, um, but we don't really get that postgraduate time with characters. You know whether it's because they're like becoming X Men, which is you know putting them in this constant like is functionally a job that doesn't exist, um, or or because the book just sort of ends at graduation. So I, I wanted to um, you know, one of my probably like my favorite section of the book to write was that moment where there um, some of the Students have graduated and they're like finding apartments in Chicago and like trying to um, build some sort of uh, community that that is related to the the one that they had at the school, but but um, gives them sort of gives them what they what they needed and what they valued out of that experience and, and builds on it. One of the um, things, while also like working temp jobs.
0: One of the things I really love about that core group of characters who cross across the the book, the books um is the ways that their relationships and dynamics within their group shift over time as as they grow as as someone who's stayed very very close to a, a group of friends not quite for that long but since since early college um yeah that's that's an evolution that I I don't think we see a lot of, a lot of I think there's a lot of everyone was close and then they grew apart and there's a lot of everyone was close and it's just the same but everyone's <laughs> coupled up and this is those those, those shifting dynamics were really cool. It actually reminded me a lot of, um, I, I, I don't know, I, I can see your, your wall of comics <laughs> behind you, um, but one of my favorite X series is, is the first generation of, of X Factor, and a lot of that is because it is one of the few places where you get to see the kids who, who, went, who grew up under these very bizarre circumstances trying to navigate and negotiate life as adults and their, dy- their interpersonal dynamics as adults, and not really having the footing to do that.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I think the, the gap between the two books gave gave me space to to come back to that in different ways. Um, I think within the first book, it, it really is that almost sort of immediate postgraduate moment that like, yeah, we're all going to live in the same town and it's going to be great, and then they're sort of coming back together in different ways and with sort of fractures between each other and um, ways that their abilities have like played out and have damaged them and ways that their experiences have damaged them and the way I sort of worked through that was was that initially a lot of them are trying to fall into the same roles that they were that they were comfortable with they're trying to sort of perpetuate these relationships and and so a lot of the second book is about ways that that doesn't work um, and and about finding new, uh, new relationships, um new ways of sort of connecting and being together.
0: So I wanna go back to direct X-Men influences, or at least points of echo. because um, there are a couple that I feel like I we need to talk about, or it would be irresponsible not to. And I, I the the central one, I mean this the school is obviously a big one, but the one that, that 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 seems central to me is is specifically the relationship between Kevin Bishop and, and Raymond Glover, who are um, Kevin is is the Xavier Xavier analog. Um, Glover is more complex, and again, I'm going to mostly avoid spoilers. But if if you, know, if you know that Bishop's the Xavier analog, you have at least some sense of, of what what dynamic role Glover is playing, and and some of the choices you made there are are obvious and sort of released, like things like making them textually have been lovers, but you also took. Glover in particular in a very very different direction and I'd like to hear more about that cuz it's it's interesting and he he's, <laughs> he's he's he mirrors Bishop in a lot of ways that remind me of other significant Xavier antagonists but none that he has that kind of parallel relationship and, and arc with.
1: Right. Um yeah, I mean I I did start, start it with a sort of um with the Xavier Magneto um dynamic and you know the the jump to making them textually clear is not a huge leap um i I, I don't know
0: if i would even go with jump sort of a a gentle (laughs) shuffle
1: yeah um but you know part of it was uh, in earlier drafts um uh kevin bishop wasn't explicitly gay in the first book and i realized it was just the kind of thing like oh i had it in my head and i didn't i didn't put it out there but um having that be something that shapes the way that he like has The other residents interact with the world. The fact that they stay closeted, and this is, you know, this is another sort of issue that I had with with X Men and with the history of the the books, is like the the metaphor of Xavier as Martin Luther King doesn't really falls apart when you think about the fact that he's essentially like his mutant identity is closeted, and he has them in like tucked away in in Westchester County. Um, So I, I wanted to sort of come at that head-on, and, and that there were reasons for him to make there are reasons that Kevin Bishop makes that decision that have to do with other aspects of his identity other than his ability um, and then as far as the way things sort of go with, um, with Raymond Glover I, I don't know that he would have been that he would have played out as quite as evil as he does in the second book if the book wasn't written when it was you know, like Sort of all bets were off on cartoonish villains, um, and I, I think again there there were uh, there were reasons that he sort of makes the decision decisions that he makes, um, but by that time, like my my empathy for that was really kind of low. <laughs>
0: yeah, I it's hard to i I imagine that writing a dystopia in in late twenty nineteen, early twenty twenty must have been a pretty surreal space to be working
1: yeah you know it it, one thing that it made easier was like you try to imagine how long it would take for the wheels to just come off and everything to completely fall apart and i was so when i was when i started this book and when i was sort of laying it out in the summer of 2016 um laying out both the books i was like well i'm gonna have to build in like 20 years Worth of everything, like th- this sort of descent into dystopia, and, and now then, twenty you know, years later. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I'm like six months, six months. Um, but yeah, I think you know, with um, with Owen Curry, who's the sort of antagonist in the in the first book, um, there was a bit more empathetic space for me, um, and then uh, by the time I sort of got to what happens in the second book. Um, I was willing to just say, like, no, this is, he's a he's a bad dude. He's, like, he may have reasons, but those reasons, I'm not going to sit here and, like, I'm not going to spend a lot of time justifying them.
0: So, obviously, the social structure and the ways that it changes between the first and second books play a role in this. But how deliberate was the decision to start with an entirely human point of view and then shift to an entirely resonant point of view?
1: Um, I mean, it was a, it was a really conscious decision. Um, it's also like, you know, I had a bigger story in mind and then I needed to find a way into that. And I needed to find something small that would, um, that would get me a sort of emotional in. And it's that father daughter relationship, um, that, um, that like got me into the book, um, and, and let me tell the story through like a, a smaller lens. And, as soon as I started writing Avi, I really liked the idea of, um, of a sort of white straight male protagonist who imagines himself the hero of the story and, and the the harm that that can do the, 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 um, the negative effects of not being able to imagine yourself, um, decentered in a story. So, you know, the, the sort of tragic arc of, him across the first book is that, that failure to realize that, that he is trying to sort of insert himself into the center of the story. And, and I just, I I did want to tell, it was important to me to, to be able to tell a story like that and to sort of break that, um, that particular narrative apart.
0: You mentioned Martin Luther King and sort of the problems with the analogy, but one of the things that Avi always, always reminds me of is that Martin Luther King quote about the greatest danger being specifically white liberals, because obviously this very, very well-meaning guy who is, you know, has has a lot invested in denial, even even at the start of the book, that there's 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 a degree of self-awareness that he's just not either not quite willing to claim or not quite willing to to admit to having, and that kind of consumes him. Over you know over the over the course of it, but like you said, we we see we see him do a tremendous amount of damage, and we see him that we see that entirely in the first book, um, where you were you were talking about the the antagonist um, you know, having having more room for for empathy for that. How did you handle that in in writing a protagonist who becomes less and less sympathetic as he goes, but whose point of view we still have?
1: Um. You know, I often find it harder to write characters who are, like, demographically closest to me. So, like, writing a dad character presents certain risk as as a parent. And so, like, taking him and upping, like, anxieties that I already have or the types of mistakes that I might make and, like, pushing him away from me um, let me look at him differently. And, like, I, I... I do like I have a sort of a uh, a warm sense for him uh, as a character, but like I, I needed to give him space to to fuck up, um, and and I think um, I think all the all the mistakes he makes are, are are sensible. They like come out of the the type of person that we we kind of know he is right up front. Like you said, he's just there's some step of self-awareness that he's not able to to take and he's close he's like throughout he's really really close and You know the sort of foil to that is is his wife who is like I am not okay with this But I am able to do the work in a certain way and I can position myself for the sake of my daughter Um, and she She is not centering herself. She is not trying to be the hero of this story and um, and that allows her to actually be be an ally, um even even in situations where she's not comfortable.
0: So I want to go back a step, um, because I should have I should have gone straight to here. Um when you were talking about sort of the, the breakdown of society, and specifically the ways in which it's rebuilt, and we see it rebuilt at the beginning of the second second book. Because one of one of the shifts over the course of, of these and one of the things that happens between the books is a pretty substantial conflict that results in a very segregated society in which um, residents pretty much are are the controlling and 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 ruling class, and we see a lot of the negative impacts of that. But we also see this incredibly vibrant kind of unprecedented culture, um, and that's that's I I'd, I'd like to hear more about sort of how you came up with that and how you shaped that.
1: Well, you know, I was, you go into something like this and you're immediately thinking like, okay, I'm writing a dystopian novel, but like most dystopias have to be utopic for someone. Like nobody, no group of people given power is going to be like, you know what we should do is we should just like, just send everything right to shit. I mean... Um, (laughs) In theory, right? Um, No
0: plausible group.
1: Yeah. So I, I wanted to, um... I I was already worried about the fact that like you're you're putting an oppressed group of people in power and their reaction is to sort of like reproduce that uh, that oppression upon another group and so that is already a problem so there like to my mind there had to be some positive outcome um, and I think um, I, I tried to see that in um, in the first book with the idea that like the kids when they get out of um, out of school, are like okay, we need to build. We need to do something new. If we're going, if we're like superpowered individuals, it it sort of falls on us to um, to do something amazing with that. And so, some something amazing had to be done. And um, that really, in the second book, starts with with uh, Fahima Deeb rebuilding New York City and starting to reinvent economies and, and dismantle capitalism and. Um, but yeah, I wanted I wanted some sense that like that they were going to use what they had in a way that was that was beneficial rather than just perpetuating conflict.
0: So what are what are the differences for the folks coming into this fresh? What does a if not entirely then largely post human society look like in in that paradigm? Or or for folks who are coming in with their main frame of a reference for that idea being Krakoa right
1: now? <laughs> um, I I think there is an analog
0: that's there now that wasn't necessarily when...
1: I know. I, I was I was done before the Hickman stuff started coming out, and I'm, like, watching this, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoy this, but oh, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of it had to do with... Um, a lot of it had to do with just looking at, at capitalist systems that aren't that weren't working, and and how people's abilities were able to to overcome that. You know, um, whether it was in terms of energy use or resource scarcity, um, or like even building supplies. Um, so, you know, what what sort of happens as a result of the conflict is that um, the eastern half of the country is is run by. By resonance, and they're they're slowly rebuilding. So New York has become a sort of um, like a city on a hill. Has become this test case of all these ideas that that Fahima Deeb, who is um, sort of my forge analog, um, sort of kind of so she is, uh, but she's not just able to build machines. She's she thinks in systems, and um, and so she is like reinventing the economic and uh, social systems within. Uh, within New York City, and then with with an eye to sort of taking that to the rest of the country.
0: So, I'm going to go back to the X Men because I, I feel like I should I feel like I should I should make sure at least yeah, like sense. a fair number of these questions are X Men related since, since nominally that's what I'm here to do. But um, you 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 talked about influences. You talked about things that have come into what are what are the X Men arcs or stories or characters or dynamics that were starting points or watchwords for you, either you know tonally, in terms of teams, in terms of structure, in terms of ideas in them. Like, if, if you had to, if you had to go and you know, do the work cited page, <laughs> <laughs> what would what would what would what would the, the the makeup of of that process look like in in comics?
1: I mean, obviously, like a lot of uh, a lot of the New Mutant stuff. Um, uh, Claremont and Simonson's uh, work on those books, um, and, and Gen X um, from the '90s, which is just kind of like when I was still sort of, I guess, not new to comics at that point. Anyways, um, you know, a big, a big influence for thinking about it was the Morrison run, and the introduction of of a sense of mutant culture, and. Um, I was kind of surprised to go back and reread those and and see how little he actually does with that. Yeah, <laughs> like it's such a great idea, and nobody on any of the books knows what to do with it. Um, but that that idea of like, well, what actually unites these people? Um, and for that, uh, in the books, there's this, there's the the hive, which is this sort of shared psychic space um, that is kind of stolen from Octavia Butler's Patternmaster books. Um, but I wanted, there had to be some connection, um, and, and then, and then from there, the idea of, like, building out culture of, like, resonant artists and resonant musicians, and, um, and, like, what do we, what do we do with these, these gifts that were, that were given? Um, so the, the Morrison, um, the Morrison stuff was definitely in my head. And then for the second book, um, I, like made a point of not rereading Age of Apocalypse uh, <laughs> while I was working on it, and then went back, and I was like, okay, this is... I'm, I am far enough away from it. There's enough daylight between these that, uh, that I don't have to worry.
0: Yeah, that's not... The, I, I, th- I don't think that's specifically the X-Men dystopian future that I would even have gone to um, if I were trying to connect it to one.
1: No, you know, I, th- I think when I was... Um, when I had the sort of new buildings in New York in my head, it was the... Um, it was the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix art by Gene Ha yeah. that uh, that I was really picturing that that sort of um, like far future architecture that that was what something that they were moving towards something that felt more organic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that like as a visual reference was um, was definitely there. Um, as far as like I don't know that there are teams or characters. I mean, obviously Fahima Deeb is uh, sort of a Forge analog and. Um, Carrie Norris, who's one of the central characters, um, is pretty much my Kitty Pride. is the, you know... She's
0: from Deerfield, so... (laughs)
1: She's from Deerfield, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I I think a lot of that just, I really wanted her to just walk into a room and say, Headmaster Bishop is a dick, and, you know, I had the Paul Smith, uh, drawing in my head. Um, so, those were sort of the main, uh, the, the closest to, um, as far as main characters, um... That their the, the uh, close analogs to um, directly to, to X Men characters. I think Hayden was Hayden shifted as uh, as the books went forward. They kind of um, their parts of their character are Ileana Rasputin and parts uh, they sort of end up in in the Dazzler role in, in on a lot of fronts. But um, so I, I don't know that there was a direct analog that I had in mind with with Hayden.
0: If, and and for for everyone who's been frustrated that you haven't seen more about relationship of between shapeshifting and exploration of gender identity, um, this is where this is this this is why this this got built to me is better X Men. Um, so, <laughs> and and that's that's actually something else that I I noticed about the books and I there are, there are points where there are there are obvious you know the the Glover Bishop relationship um, analogs, but one of the things I really appreciated is that you're building resonant identity on top of a very, very wide and intersectional range of characters, existing identities to begin with, and looking at how those interact.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, it's another spot where the metaphor can sort of fail to operate, um, but that that this is only an aspect of identity. And um, so I really wanted to look at yeah, how um, other parts of people's identity was going to affect how they think about um, being being a resident and having these powers, um, and you know, so part of that was uh, was Fahima Deeb, who uh, is Muslim and is queer, and um, so she's coming in to this idea, like, so government oppression for her is is a very real and concrete. Uh, risk and concept. And um and so she understands that coming in before it's even a threat. Um and you know, the the ways that uh I, I didn't play too much with the the sort of visual um how do I put this um abilities that visually manifest, like people who couldn't in theory pass as as normal. There there's sort of one character that um that really can't. Um, and I, in earlier drafts, there was there was more of that, and it just it became a whole different, a whole other project, a uh, whole other vector to handle. Um, but yeah, um, you know, Hayden's relationship to their powers, um, as as someone who's trans and a shapeshifter, um, was you know I think I think these are things that um, they're all sort of there in the in the source material, and and they just it's rare that they get leaned on, um, or they get sort of brought to light or made explicit.
0: The most obvious parallel to the X-Men as a team, you see, because even in the school books, you see sort of the generational divide where you've got the the older, the, the adults who are the superheroes and then the kids growing up are kind of Bishop's inner circle in the first book, where you've got Fahima and the Davenports. And, um, and Kamani, is that? Mm? And and Kamani in this very very small specific group. Um. And I'd love to hear more about how you built those characters and fleshed them out because, especially, I think. I and again, I I don't I don't want to ruin. That. <laughs> again, um, the Davenport's <laughs> especially were characters who kind of kept on surprising me. In ways that rang very true with the way they were they were written, but also in in the directions that they then went. And their background to is is such an interesting place because they're they're coming from multi-generational resonant families and communities. But but also from this very, very New England wasp privileged <laughs> angle.
1: Yeah, you know, and that that was that sort of that maps onto this sort of idea of intersectionality is like um, th- that some people are not going to be bringing that kind of baggage to to how they think about these things. And I, I wanted um, with uh, with Sarah and Patrick Davenport for them to be people who are like, oh no, I I fully accept this as an identity. It's not new to me um, because for most people. Um, there's not a generational connect, you know, there, there's a distance between parents. Um, and so, um, you know, they are, they're sort of, I, I did have the Hellfire Club in mind a little bit with um, the, the Thanksgiving dinner that they go to. Um, but this idea of like, well, even within a community that has these abilities and has chosen to stay um, secretive about it, there would be some advantage gained, um, and some people would use these these abilities to um, to secure sort of financial positions. And so the the their ethics are are they're just coming in from a very different angle from most of the people in the books. Um, in that um, they are they're uncomfortable with what their with what their parents have done uh, with their abilities, but they're they're also not. Um, they're not giving up any of that privilege. You know, they're like, oh, my dad is, you know, my dad made a bunch of money um, using his psychic powers. He's gross, but also let's go to their house for for Thanksgiving and, you know. Um, and then um, Kamani, who we don't really find out much about until the second, uh, second book was, um, I, I wanted someone whose powers were like completely different and sort of um, functioned really differently. And also, you know, to be quite honest, just the idea of like a door that uh, moves around and, and opens in space is kind of one of the f- foundational ideas of the book, um, and like that image of uh, of Avi hearing a knock in uh, in his office that doesn't have a door, and then looking up and seeing this door there. Um, so um, with Kamani, you know. The, the mutant metaphor gets talked about as a metaphor for uh, racial discrimination and for um, LGBTQ rights. And and I think, uh, and I know y'all have talked about this on the show, but like a lot of times what it works best as or, or maps onto a little better is, is disability rights. And so I wanted with Kamani to show someone who is like physically limited by their ability. Like their ability is amazing, but it... it it imposes a, a serious physical limitation, um, and I I should say that like one of the other one of the non X Men uh, influences on on the book is is Def President Now is the the book about Gallaudet and um, the the sort of protest movements that um, that started there in the eighties, and um, that was that helped sort of clarify a lot of um, a lot of stuff for me and a lot of what the school was going to look like uh, was. Um, was both that book and um, Far From the Tree, which is about um, parenting across difference. And, um, uh, you know, there are chapters on uh, parents who have children who are deaf and have to make this decision about... Um, and that, that sort of was my introduction to the idea of like deafness versus cultural deafness um, or deaf as culture versus deaf as uh, a sort of disability. Um, and that, the thinking around that really helped sort of um, really solidify what I wanted, um, how I wanted this to work as a metaphor in a lot of ways. It's
0: funny that you bring that up, because the, the thing I was thinking of in context of the Davenport specifically was, was Martha's, the Deaf culture at Martha's Vineyard.
1: Oh, okay, and yeah. the way
0: you have the, the intersection of, of a disabled community and a very, very, very privileged community a very, very, very economically-privileged community, and... the weirdly specific thing that- the, the specifically insular insular space that grows around that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it made a lot of sense that if this, um, this community were secret, they would sort of move into, like, that they would uh, group up, that they would- and that some of those little enclaves would be super affluent.
0: So we've, we've talked about a lot of the framing, a lot of the stuff in the first book. What we've what I've kind of skirted around is the character who's really kind of at the core of a lot of the story. Um, it's Emmeline Hirsch. And she is incredibly powerful, and in some ways she's kind of both a, a deus ex machina and the, the hand behind it. She's also very much a person, how do you how do you navigate that? How do you make a character who's that close to omnipotent, and keep them from being defined by by that?
1: Well, I think you know part of it is that her power is sort of her ability is locked away for for quite a while. That she has um, her relationship with her power is very different from a lot of other people's in the book, um, in that she is. Uh, the first couple times that it's deployed it's a really negative experience and um, so you know she sort of comes to the fore in the second book and it is about her um, really entering the world she's been she's been hidden away um, her power has been locked down and um, her sort of learning about the world coming into this this new world that is um, the, the situation that um, things have sort of arrived at in the second book and, and coming to that point where she accepts that power and, and is willing uh, and is, is no longer just sort of terrified by it. And I, I think, um, I think by that point, by the point where she is like, well, nigh omnipotent, am um, it, her character is sort of informed by the relationships that she's formed through that book. Um, you know, uh, it, the second book has a sort of buddy road movie vibe for a while. And then it became this, like getting the band back together, uh, story. And Emmeline is, um, kind of to the side of that. She's, you know, she's younger than most of the characters and, um, she's like picking up things from people that have been through this sort of terrible conflict. And then, um, she's, I don't think this is spoiling anything, but is able to say, like, no, we need we need a sort of third path. We need to, like, this isn't right, that's not right. Um, we're going to try something entirely different. Yeah, you're
0: seeing her, you have her stepping into the role that a lot of the students were stepping into toward the end of the first book when they were starting to challenge and question Bishop's ideas. Perhaps
1: yeah, really yeah, true. and I, I think that... Um, you know her. Her character grows out of seeing that, like being around for that moment of going public and seeing the positives and the negatives of that, um, and then seeing how open conflict has has ultimately damaged these these people that she sort of comes to care about, and and so neither of those seem like options to her.
0: One of the things that really, really that I really loved about her. Um, more than anything that takes place during the, the plot main was what she does kind of after things are more resolved, when when she's got control of her powers and she's just obsessively going and tracking down when everyone she cares about dies and making sure they don't die alone. Like, that, that just... That's never an arc you see someone with that kind of power taking, and it's one that... Yeah, it just it even if it was more denouement, like that that hit like a ton of bricks because it was it was not only such a departure from the ways that that we're used to seeing those powers framed and used but it's such a specifically human relationship to those powers. It is it's it's the equivalent to to the to the sort of fun private what would you do if you had superpowers but saving the world isn't an option conversation. Like it's it's such a it's such a humane and it's such a private way to interact with that power.
1: Yeah, I, you know, we, we did change bits of the ending and like, um, again, I don't think we're spoiling anything to say that there's a time travel element. Um, and once you introduce that, like you have to be very rule bound and, and I was not (laughs) in early drafts and my editor is like, actually, you can't ever do these things. Um, but it, you know, that moment um, sort of the, the seed for that is is what happens with with her and her father. Um, a scene that like plays out in um, in both books, and um, and that I was just like sobbing through both times I had to write it. And Like I was dreading having to go back to this scene um, in the second book. Um, but the the point the point of going back to it the second time was that she does get something out of it that she like has this sense you know she's there for her father when he dies and that there's something um there's something valuable um for her and that and it it is a moment where she like realizes that there there realizes that there are limits of what she can change um about what's what's happened in the past and and ultimately what's happened in the future so um so that sort of drove that that whole sequence was this idea of like I did this, I was able to do this um, for my dad and I'm I'm going to sort of go forward and and do it for these people that I care about. And and that that in fact like it, it's good for her in a lot of ways but it it ends up making her feel really distant. Um, it it like re-entry into the world becomes really difficult for her after that.
0: So we're, we're running a little low on time, and I want to I wanna pull things back to X-Men into the process of, of, of jumping off from an established point. What would you recommend to writers who are looking to do similar things, who are, are starting with a premise or a piece of, or a fragment of popular culture, and want to take that foundation and really build something different on it?
1: I, I think you just have to boil it all the way down. You know, um, we, we mentioned sort of filing the serial numbers off and like that, I think that's fine. And I, I think, um, you know, I think if that's something that you want to do, that's fine. But like looking at, at something like that and, and really trying to figure out why it speaks to you and, um, and getting into a sort of core um, uh, conceptual or emotional bit of it, Um, is the key. I mean, this, this, it started, this book started out as an X-Men pitch. Um, I like saw there was like a a big narrative thread that seemed like was left on the table um, with the Bendis run, which is like what happens in this alternate reality where they have, where the original five disappeared. And so I was like making notes about, you know, this like ridiculous, you know, book that I was never actually going to try to pitch to Marvel. Um, and, and I got, you know, a lot of that was just being really nerdy and like, okay, who's around, uh, in, you know, which characters would have been around in the sixties and who could I move into these spots? And, but I started to notice little shifts that I was making and I was like, oh, that, um, that sort of speaks to something that, uh, that hasn't worked for me in this and, and changing it makes the core idea stronger or more, um, more vital for me and um and that that was sort of that was when i started like brushing all that other stuff off and and really got into like well what is this um what does this mean and what would be the reasons for me to tell this story um and and again it came from um bringing together sort of a big idea which was this idea of like demographic shift and, um, the idea of a, uh, of an oppressed group that had, um, like actual power rather than, um, than this sort of perceived metaphorical power, which is like, you know, like I said, I started writing this in the, the summer of 2016. So I'm like watching these, what was going on in like Charlottesville and, and this, this fear around, um, people that have never been like that are, economically disadvantaged uh that are like but carry a, a huge amount of like psychic weight for the the uh, the oppressing uh group and um so there was there was that there was this sort of larger demographic idea and then there was this idea of um of generational difference of like the kids are weird and and sort of amping that up it's like what how do you um how do you parent or fail to parent a kid that is that is fundamentally different um, from you? And you know, ultimately, because it's a book, failure to do that is is sort of more interesting narratively. So that um, and and I think um, that's something I, I don't think X Men plays with that very often. No, it really um, doesn't. There's not yeah, really see, there's not you- really
0: space. I guess a- aside from the prides, there's not really a space for well-intentioned failure you really see either extreme exaggerated awful or absolutely perfect
1: yeah i mean yeah like you said there's the there's the early i guess there's the grace
0: i guess you can you can have the generally good parents with i abjure you moments but
1: (laughs) um but yeah other than that like there's there's bobby drake's parents and and then like just sort of lists of parents that like shunt their kids off to to the school. Um, but yeah, it it was something that, um, that I didn't feel like the comics had explored that much. And, and like you said, I think it's because there's, it's tough to find that narrative space. And so that was, that was sort of my, my weight into like a, a really ground level of, um, of the concept was through this sort of emotional door of, of thinking about it as a parent. Um, and again, then just like, amplifying a lot of um like things that i'm already worried about on a regular basis
0: so do you at this point sort of have a clear sense of of what you would do if your daughter spontaneously developed superpowers
1: i'm not sure that that isn't going to happen i mean this is what like their kids are bizarre (laughs) (laughs) um you know i i have i have two kids and they're they're just they're they're like me in a lot of ways uh and and completely strange to me in other ways and so like it it does not take much to sort of amp that idea up um i I think you know staying out of her way is uh is largely the best best advice uh that i have as a parent um whether or not she like starts to fly around the room or read my mind or anything
0: so as we wrap up, I'm going to pull back to the few questions that we we tend to ask people. we, we try not to be like these are the five questions we always ask um, but there, there, there are a couple. And the first one is is you, you mentioned coming in with with generation X what, to, what to, to the extent that any one book or team or era can define X-Men for you, what what's yours?
1: Uh um I you know, I actually came in before Generation X. I was thinking about this today and I started reading X-Men Comics with Executioner's Song, which is a Ooh, really weird
0: <laughs> Wow. That's that's jumping into the deep um, end.
1: Yeah, but it was it was great because like there was it's so dense and it like it indicates such a deep narrative past that you can start like looking for stuff and like as a as a kid having uh or you know, it's like a A teenager, um, being able to find answers to things was so cool. Um, so like I, I moved back from there, like it took me years to even get to the Claremont stuff because I was just like reading what I could get my hands on before. And then I started reading like the, the black and white, um, essentials books, the big phone books. Um, so that, that sort of nineties, uh, the blue and gold team era is, um, is sort of where I came in. Um, and then as a, a, as a reader, who's like a little older, like the, the new mutant stuff really kind of spoke to me and, and, um, both, uh, parts of the, the first run of X factor, um, the original five, and then the, the sort of Peter David stuff, um, which is weirdly where I drifted after executioner song. Cause I think I really liked Jay Lee's art and thought there would be more of it.
0: Yeah. No, there's, <laughs> there's so little that, that, yeah. Yeah. The first time I was reading through, I wasn't paying very, very close attention to artists, and and there there have been a lot of there there have been a lot of what I think of as defining runs that turn out to be like three issues. It's very weird.
1: Yeah. You know, the actually the other big one uh, was was Paul Smith, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was just because that was something that was collected in color. There was like a trade paperback called From the Ashes, yeah. and of the the Madeline Pryor stuff, which I don't think I had read Dark Phoenix at mm-hmm. that point, and I was- because, again, like, you grabbed what you could- what you could find and what was in print, and, uh, but visually, like, Paul Smith is sort of my defining X-Men artist.
0: You mentioned, um, you mentioned the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, but I gotta say, when- when I was reading the somebody people in the New York descriptions, what I was thinking was Paul Smith Alien Landscapes, like, that's... Oh,
1: thanks.
0: He's got- he's got that- that very, very, very organic... just. Landscapes, but that are dominated by by these these impossible edifices.
1: Yeah, can I mention one thing, one idea that like didn't quite make it, that came directly from Explain the X Men*. Um, I think you were you guys were talking about the um, Cable and Hope books, and you kind of mentioned how cool an idea it would be to to see a female version of Cable. In that role, this sort of like almost lone wolf and cub, e uh, grizzled, and so there was material in the second book that went into like a darkest timeline kind of thing, where Carrie was was very hard mapped onto that, and um, and the reason that she has a like a slice on her eye by the end of it was like was a sort of a last uh, vestigial bit of that wow. that that didn't get cut, but that was directly like. That's a really good idea. I'm taking that idea. <laughs>
0: oh man, that's really that's makes so much sense as a path with that character too. And
1: yeah, and the the whole sort of the weird, we tried to cut down on a lot of the time travel stuff, so that had to that had to go for reasons.
0: So thank you again so much for coming on. If folks are looking to read those or to follow you on social media or elsewhere, where can where can where can they find you in your work?
1: Um, so mostly, I am on Twitter at. Uh, um, just Bob Prohl, P-R-O-E-H-L. Um, and my website is just bobprohl.com. Um, that's that's pretty much where I'm at. That's the publisher website. So like links to the books are through there. And um, yeah.
0: All right, and I'll make sure to stick all of those in the visual companion. Thank you again so much for making the time to join us, and take care. This episode of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men was recorded in some combination of New York and Connecticut, including an outro patch on my laptop's built-in mic. Sorry about that. As always, the show is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. You can check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Full disclosure. 2020 is a nightmare, and our 17-year-old cat just died, so there's not going to be a hawk talk next week, sorry. Um, vote, stay hydrated, and we'll be back on November 8th with Storm's first miniseries. <music>